Hi. Thank you. I'm still Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. I hope everybody had a good lunch. Uh, yeah, we broke a little early, so you could sort of enjoy that. Um, I'm going to circulate the Ask It basket, and before I do that, I just want to make it known there are two types of questions that if I see them, I'm not going to answer them. The first one being about my food plan or what I think your food plan should be, I don't know. I'm not a nutritionist, and I do not play one on TV. The other thing I will say is I will not take questions about what you can do for your nephew, niece, boss, next-door neighbor, how you can get them abstinent. I have no idea. There's three things you can probably do for them. Recover, recover, and recover. And if you're recovering and you're having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, you're probably doing everything you can possibly do um, to get them to recover. And if they won't or they don't want to, I certainly have no idea what you could do. So that said, I'm really glad that we're here, and I'm glad that we're back after lunch. And as I stated, if you were here in the first session, we're at the bottom of page 8, and we're at the bottom of page 8, and we stop there because it is a natural stopping point because we've got Bill Wilson, and he is drunk in his kitchen. And he is drunk, and he is about to get a visit from somebody who is going to change the course of the world that we live in. But before we get to him, and before we get to anything about that, what we're going to be talking about are some things that Bill, at this point in his situation, knows nothing of. And we're going to go back to a man who was an alcoholic, and he was from a very wealthy family in Rhode Island. His family owned Burlington Mills Carpeting. And they were major stockholders in another company, which is still traded on the, on the stock exchange today, called Allied Chemical. These were very wealthy people. They were in the carpeting business. And his name was Roland Hazard. Roland was an alcoholic. He was a drunk of the absolute... Uh, bottom-of-the-barrel mentality, and in an attempt to stop his alcoholism, in an attempt to curtail his alcoholism, he actually had himself sequestered on a Caribbean island. And while he was sequestered on this Caribbean island, the quartermaster was instructed never to bring him liquor. And so while he was on the island, he managed to stay perfectly sober. Of course, once he got off the island, he was drunk within a very, very short period of time. Roland Hazard <clears throat> happened to be a person who wanted to show his mom and dad that he could be sober. This was their dream, was to get their son sober. This was their aspiration, was to get him sober. And, of course, they couldn't do it. And Roland Hazard sought out... In 1932, or excuse me, in 1933, he sought out the services of the most preeminent psychiatrist in the world, Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud at that time, now you have to remember that a lot of things are going to be coming together here. One of the things that we're going to see is that psychiatry at that time was in its, was in its infancy too, and we're going to talk about something else. But he sought out the services of Sigmund Freud, and Sigmund Freud was not taking on any new patients. So he sought out the services of Freud's number one protege, and that man's name was Dr. Adler. And Adler wasn't taking in any new patients either. And so Roland Hazard sought the services of the third most preeminent psychiatrist in the world, a man who practiced in Switzerland, and his name was Dr. Carl Jung. And Dr. Carl Jung, between 1933 and 1934, the spring of 34, treated Roland Hazard for a lot of different things, not alcoholism, but while under the care of Dr. Jung, Roland managed to stay sober. Roland, in 1934, after a year of treatment from Dr. Freud, goes home because Freud says, you are allowed to leave. You're, you know, I've done all I can for you. And Roland goes back to the shipyard, 
and he gets drunk immediately because there's a bar in there. He figures he hasn't had a drink for a year. Dr. Freud said it was okay for him to go home, and he gets rip-roaring drunk. He gets drunk. He goes back to Dr. Jung, and Dr. Jung says to him, I have misdiagnosed you. You are an alcoholic. And Dr. Jung says to Roland the same thing that Silkworth would have said to him, the same thing that Freud would have said to him, the same thing that Adler would have said to him. There's really nothing I can do. But is it odd or is it God that he got to Jung rather than Freud or Adler because Freud and Adler believed that all solution lie within the mind? But Dr. Jung broke rank with them and said to Roland Hazard, here and there, there have been phenomenon of a spiritual experience where people have been altered. And he told Roland this information. And because it was really the only thing Roland could hang on to, he could grab onto this, he wanted to grab this. And he goes back to America armed with his information that a spiritual experience, not a spiritual awakening, but a spiritual experience. A spiritual awakening is slow over time. If you want amplification for this, read Appendix 2 in the back of the big book, 560, page 567. But a spiritual experience is bang. It's just like what Bill had in the town's hospital, uh, what, what we're going to read this morning. But Roland is looking for this spiritual experience to hit him like a truck so he doesn't have to drink anymore, and he doesn't go back to a conventional church, he doesn't go back to a conventional religion, but what he does do is he seeks out what is in its infancy at this time, the services of the Oxford Group Movement, and the Oxford Group Movement was just really getting off the ground at that time, and these were people who were not at all concerned with alcoholism, they were not at all concerned with, with anything like that. They were people practicing to the best of their ability first century Christianity. And the founder of the Oxford Group Movement, a man whose name is Frank Buckman, he was a Lutheran minister from Pennsylvania. And he was a Lutheran minister who believed that there were people who had lost their enthusiasm. There's an interesting word, enthusiasm. It comes from two ancient Greek words, and theos from God. And theos is where we get enthusiasm from, and that means from God. And he saw that Christians were losing their zeal, their enthusiasm for their Christianity, and he went on a mission to China. And as such, he saw in China real enthusiastic missionaries in China that had regained, rekindled their enthusiasm for Christianity. And how they got it back was through service to other people, serving other human beings. And he saw that in these people who served others, who thought of others first and themselves last, he saw the rekindling of what he was looking for. And so he goes back and he begins this movement, which was taking foothold in England near Oxford University. And many of his earlier followers were called those Oxford people. And then they started to be called that Oxford group. Now, Oxford University is in England. They later told him, to knock off using their name because Buckman also had a great deal of respect for Hitler because Hitler was very disciplined and Buckman liked that. So in, uh, the Oxford University said, knock it off. So now they're called the Moral Rearmament Society. But at that time, they were the Oxford Group Movement. And in New York City was an Episcopal minister who was at that time a very... A uh, very good minister. He was an Episcopal guy, and he was a follower of the Oxford group as well, and his name was Sam Shoemaker. 
And Sam Shoemaker is someone who had a great deal of influence on Bill. And when we get to Chapter 5, we're going to be talking about him more. But Sam Shoemaker ran the cavalry mission in New York City. And in 1933, Roland Hazard comes in, or excuse me, 1934, Roland Hazard comes to the cavalry mission in New York City in search of this spiritual experience. And he makes friends, and he starts working the Oxford Group Six-Step Program. And the six-step program of the Oxford Group is also something we're going to be talking about this afternoon. But he is staying sober. And he meets another drunk in there, and this guy's name is Shep Cornell, and another drunk in there he meets, and that guy's name is Zebra Graves Jr. And Zebra Graves Jr. is going to loom large in our being here today as well. And Roland Hazard is staying sober through the spring and summer of 1934. Now, Let's go to, we're going to leave Shep Cornell and Zebra Graves Jr. And we're going to leave Roland Hazard. And we're going to, through the magic of our minds, go to Albany, New York. And in Albany, New York, in the spring and summer of 1934, there was a man. And the man's name was Edwin Ebby Thatcher. Now, Edwin Ebby Thatcher came from a very wealthy, prominent family in Albany. Mayor Thatcher, there's a Thatcher Park in Albany, New York. His father was the mayor, and then later on, his brother also became the mayor of Albany, New York. But in the summer, spring summer of 1934, Ebby was getting into quite a bit, a lot of trouble with his family through his drunken escapades. And the Thatchers had a summer home in a very wealthy suburb of East Dorset, Vermont, called Manchester, Vermont. And in Manchester, Vermont, they had their home, their summer home, and they said to Ebby, get the F out of here, go to the summer home, or I'm going to stab you with a fork. No, they didn't say <laughs> They said, get out of here because you're getting drunk and you are embarrassing us. You're embarrassing us. Go to the summer home. So he goes, and he's painting a wall. And, of course, what does he do while he's painting the wall? He's got a paintbrush in one hand and a bottle of hooch in the other hand. And he's getting drunk. And then a pigeon lands on the wall. And, you know, he was painting, and he didn't want the pigeon to disturb the painting. So he goes in, he gets his shotgun out. He starts blasting this pigeon. Of course, the pigeon's long gone flying somewhere out over Utah or something by that time. And Ebby is shooting at the wall, and of course the neighbors don't like that very much. And they call the police, and the police come, and they say to Ebby, hey, okay, we're going to let you off this time, but if this kind of shenanigan happens again, we are taking you in, and you're going before the judge, and you're going to go to Brattleboro. Brattleboro is a city in Vermont, but it's also where they have the Vermont State Insane Asylum. And they were telling him that if he doesn't straighten up and fly right, he's going to Brattleboro Insane Asylum. And he didn't want that to happen. But he was an alcoholic. And in summer of 1934, late summer of 1934, Ebby drives right through a woman's kitchen, drives right into her house, drunk, shows not the slightest bit of contrition, shows not the slightest bit of remorse, and instead of saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry, are you okay, I'm sorry I ran over your house or your cat, whatever it was, he comes out of the car and in an attempt to be a jovial drunk says, hey, Toots, how about a cup of coffee? And she's now irate. She calls the police. The police come. They lock him up. And he is about to go before the judge to be remanded to the Vermont State Insane Asylum at Brattleboro. Now, in August of 1934, also we go back to the Oxford Group movement and we find Roland and Zebra Graves Jr. And Roland is now going to visit his parents in Rhode Island. And his parents are thrilled. They're quelling. 
If you don't know what kveling is, kveling is a Jewish word for rapture beyond description. Rapture beyond description. Picture yourself as a Jewish mother. Your, your daughter is about to be sworn in as the first female president of the United States. You're quelling. That's what it is. And somebody says, aren't you proud of your daughter for being the first female president of the United States? And she stops long enough to say, yes, but her brother's a doctor. So <laughs> that's... That's quelling beyond any reason. Quelling is what this is. And the hazards say to Roland, you've been doing such good work in the Oxford group. Take a vacation. Take some time off. We'll pay the freight. So he says to his friend, Sebra Graves Jr., where can we go to have a little fun? Where can we go to have just a little bit of fun because my parents are paying and we can go anywhere we want? So Roland Hazard and Sebra Graves Jr. are now going to go to see Sebra Graves Jr.'s parents in a place called East Dorset, Vermont, who else is from East Dorset, Vermont? Let me think for, oh yeah, Bill Wilson. And who else is in, in a lockup over there? Oh yeah, Ro, our Ebby Thatcher. Oh yeah. So it's all kind of coming together here. Is it odd or is it God? But God is moving these constellations of influence into this equation. He's moving all these various parts into play. Now, Roland Hazard and, and, and Sebra Graves Jr. just happened to be going, if I spit on you, I'm sorry. They just <laughs> happened to be going to this place that week at the, at the beginning of September. Because if they went the week before, I'm in my grave in Chicago in Waldheim Cemetery. If they went the week after, I'm in a piano box in Waldheim Cemetery in Chicago. I'm dead as a doornail. But they happened to be going that, that week, that first week of September, 1934, and Roland Hazard knew of Ebby because the Hazards also happened to have a summer home in Manchester, Vermont, which is outside East Dorset, Vermont. And he knew of Ebby, and he knew the kind of drunk Ebby was. So they go to the judge whose name just happens to be Sebra Graves Sr. And Sebra Graves Sr. is the judge, and his son and Roland are sober, and they're wide-eyed, and they're fresh-skinned, and they look fantastic, and they're doing great. And they say to the judge, release uh, Ebby to our care, remand him to our care, and we will take him to the Oxford Group Movement in New York, and we'll see what we can do with him. Ebby is brought before the judge, and he signs extradition papers. Before they will release him, he signs extradition that he will not waive extradition from New York back to Vermont. So if he acts up in New York, it's right to Brattleboro Insane Asylum, you go. Now, it is September of 1934. Ebby Thatcher is now going to meetings of the Oxford Group Movement. He does not know what alcoholism is. He doesn't know what alcoholism is, is reacting to. He do, only knows <clears throat> sorry, he only knows that he is staying sober. So Ebby is sober during September of 1934. He is sober during October of 1934, one month. From September to October is one month. From October to November is two months. And they tap Ebby and they say, Ebby, it's time for you to go give testimony. And he says, what's that? And they say, well, go tell people what God has done for you that you were able to stay sober for two months. And he says, gosh, I don't want to go give any testimony. I'm going to embarrass myself. And they said, well, you could go to Brattleboro. I'm sure they have a nice room picked out for you. And he says, you know, I think I'll go give some testimony. <laughs> Call me crazy. So he thinks and thinks. I raised a daughter. Think, think, Winnie the Pooh, right? Think, 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 think. So he thinks, who can I go give testimony in New York City to 
where I won't embarrass the daylights out of myself. And he finally remembers that he can give testimony to his old drinking buddy who lives in Brooklyn, and his name just happens to be Bill Wilson. He calls upon Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson is sitting in his kitchen, bottom of page 8, very bottom of page 8, and he decides to call on Bill And where we're going to pick up the story from this morning is at the bottom of 8. And I told you before we begin with the text, I told you this morning, if you were here, and I think we've got some new faces and some of you are kind of moved around a little bit, that we have the first eight pages of Bill's story is about Bill's plunge into his alcoholism. Step one, the powerless condition. And we talked about the fact that for an alcoholic, alcohol is never the problem. For the compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. Food for the compulsive overeater is the answer to the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the intense pain, the searing pain that comes into the heart, the mind, and the soul of a compulsive overeater when they're not eating. And when we are not eating, we feel horrible. And when we've lost weight through dieting, through, through gutted, gutted down restriction, people want to know, don't you feel better? Don't you feel better? Yes, I feel anger better. I feel <laughs> jealousy better, guilt better, shame, remorse. I feel like killing myself better. I feel crushes on girls better. I feel all these things much better And in an attempt to live in this world, I eat food because food represents the only relief that my brain knows from the pain of not eating. So what is the problem? It is the buildup of emotions which causes the pain. All human beings have emotions. All human beings have guilt, shame, happiness, elation, accomplishment, sorrow, jealousy, All these various fear, anger, all these various emotions are common to human beings. But in normal human beings, those emotions are dissipated very effectively and very quickly through a glass of wine or going to the gym or getting a massage or uh, whatever that is or having sex or going for a ride. You know, sometimes you get a ride in, you know, you ride your car, get rid of it. Not so with us. And the mind, in our cases, has that mental twist. And the twist is activated by this pain and says, I know what to do. I'll have him eat a Kit Kat bar. And the intelligent part of the brain says, no, 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 no. We're not going to eat a Kit Kat bar. We want to look good. We want to feel good. We want to be good. We want to be attractive. We want to like what we see in the mirror. And the, the mental twist won't let me go because it's seeking out that effect. And that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating the food. So that food is doing something for me that the, that food is do, doing something for me that it doesn't do for the normal person. A normal person, a normal eater, does not get that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating Kit Kat bars. They just don't. And so the food is doing something for me. Now, if we could... Just think for a minute before we begin with the, with the origin of step two and the whole thing of step two. If we can think of it, bless you, in terms of this. I'll pose this question. For those who were here this morning, I've already done this. But what if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where those emotions do not build up to the level that causes that toxicity, that causes that incense, that demand for the food that the mental twist has? And what if I could find a way to live where I already feel better and I don't want the food? And the process of bringing a power greater than yourself into the equation is called recovery. Recovery. To return that which has been lost. Recovery. In Hebrew, there's a word, balchuva, one who has returned to us. And in English, that would be 
recovery to return that which has been lost. We have been lost to our God. We have been lost to our creator. We have been lost to a power greater than ourselves. And we've been running on self-will. And what Bill didn't know at this point in his life is that all the things that Silkworth had told him on page seven, now is it odd or is it God? He is about to stumble into the solution to the problem. Let's go to page eight at the very beginning. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice, sorry, the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. Now notice this is in italics. He was sober. Now this is very unbelievable to Bill Wilson. He knew Ebby, knew him well. They had done a lot of drinking together. Ebby used to run around saying, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Wilson, I'm going to quit drinking. And Bill used to say, if I ever get to be as bad a drunk as Ebby, I'm going to quit drinking. And Ebby shows up and he was sober. It was years since I could remember him coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course, he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. That very, the very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So are eaters. We love a binge buddy. We love our binge buddies. There's people we can each just eat our heads off with, and we love a binge buddy. And when you get into recovery, if you're new, there's going to be three things in your life that are going to change amidst all the other things that are going to change. Your playgrounds, your playmates, and your play toys are going to change. You're not going to have the same playgrounds, the buffets. You're not going to have the same playmates, the binge buddies. And you're not going to have the same play toys. Your fork, your knife, your spoon, whatever. It's not going to happen. Okay. The door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow he was in himself. Come, what's all this about? I queried. Excuse me. He had looked straight at me simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. So I was aghast. That, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. This Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yeah, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men, Seber Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard, had appeared in court persuading the judge, Seber Graves Sr., to suspend his commitment. They had, sold, they had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action that was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. And when you looked at those words, it worked, I'm reminded of one of the most important paragraphs on page 88 in the book. It's a very simple paragraph. It says, it works. It really does. So Ebby is living proof that it works because he is standing there and he is sober and fresh-skinned and glowing and ready to take on life. He had come to pass, bottom of nine, all the way to the bottom of nine, he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Now, some of these questions that you get about what should I do with a sponsee that's slipping and slipping and slipping, if they don't want to do this, leave them alone. Let, let, the food will beat him back in here. Don't worry about it. Leave him alone. I was, I sir, <laughs> if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. Am I hopeless? You better believe it. Without this program, I am dead. And worse than dead, I will be dead until I'm dead. I want to live until I die. <laughs> I want to be alive every day until God calls me home. And until God tells me it's time to come out of the game and give this job to somebody else, I'm going to live and I want to grasp at life. And I can't live in the food. The food for me is, is a death. It's the same thing. 
He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doing. His insistence that the spheres really had their music. But his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. That old time, wartime day in Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power, notice powers capitalized, greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. Now, Bill is hearing this spiritual solution to his problem, and there's a part of him that does not like it. He doesn't like this idea of God. Because like some people I know, are there any people in this room that have ever had problems or difficulties? No? Okay. But Bill, I just was, just was wondering, Bill didn't get a pony either. And Bill got some rough dice just like we all did. And Bill's parents got divorced when he was a young boy. And Bill was stuck to live with his grandma and grandpa in East Dorset, and they took very good care of him, but he always felt like he wasn't like the other kids because he came from a divorced home. He was a person who had an inferiority complex, and he just wanted to be like the other kids. Can anybody in this room relate to that? And he's resisting this idea of a God because he didn't get a pony. And there's a lot of problems out there in the world, right? So he sees this, he hears this, and he's, he's kind of understanding that he believes in a power greater than himself. He believes in a spirit of the universe, but he's not really there yet. Let's see where he goes. Very bottom of 10. With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. So we have this idea that there is a God, but when we're introduced to the idea that God is personal to me or personal to you, that is where we get off the boat in most cases. And if you are a sponsor or you are a sponsee, you've heard people struggling with this and you've probably struggled with it yourself. If God is so personal to me, why don't I have what I want? Why won't people do what I want them to do? And why isn't the world my little oyster? And there are three things that I I've learned to believe about my God. You can believe whatever you want about your God, and I'm not here to tell you what to believe. But I have to believe these three things, and I'm going to share all three of them with you right now. I have to believe that God is powerful. I have to believe God is perfect. And I have to believe God is personal to me. You can reject every one of those premises and still recover. I'm telling you my opinion I'm telling you my experience living my life, and I'm the only one in the room that's lived my life. I must believe God is powerful, powerful enough to help me. I need help. I can't do this alone. Believe me, I've tried. Sometimes I put my foot in my mouth, and sometimes I make other mistakes, and sometimes I'm sorry for those mistakes, and sometimes they get by me. But what I can't tell you is, is that I'm powerful enough to rectify things and to change my addiction on my own. I believe God is perfect. Does that mean I have a Maserati? Does that mean I have the perfect girlfriend or whatever? No, I don't have any girlfriend. But what I can tell you is he's perfect. He knows exactly how to run the universe. Again, these are my opinions, my experiences. Take what you want, leave the rest. I'm just telling you about me 
and I believe that God is personal to me. I feel him, I know he's here, and I know that when I'm here doing service for OA, that he is very much holding my hand here this afternoon. Why I know he's holding my hand here this afternoon, I invited him in to hold my hand, because I'm afraid of being up here and saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of being up here and leaving something out. There's always three big book studies that I do. The one I plan, the one I do, and the one I beat myself on the head on the way home for having what I should have done. So I have God, and I say, please come with me. When I go into the bathroom, right before I started, I looked in the mirror, I looked up, and I said, God, tell me what you want me to say, and I'll say it. Don't let me enter into this equation at all. So for me, I have to believe he is powerful, he is perfect, and he is personal to me. I am at the bottom of ten With ministers in the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. Notice him is in capitals. His moral teaching most excellent. For myself I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient, not too difficult, the rest I disregarded. And that's what a lot of people want to do with God. We want to treat him as a cafeteria. We want to take this, leave that, take this, leave that, and that's what we want to do. And what I've learned in my life, for me, not for you, for me, I've learned that everything I do today, everything I say today, Everything about my life, I'm either moving toward God or I'm moving toward the food and there's no middle ground. I'm either moving toward God or I am moving toward the food. The wars which had been fought, the burnings, the chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. And they still do. Okay, they still do. But God's perfect. I don't know why some of these things happen. I have no idea why little children get leukemia. I have no idea why people do the things that they often do. I don't know. But there is a God and it's not me. The chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance (laughs) the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. Sorry. But my friends, this the thing with my nose. Sorry. <laughs> All right, sorry about that. Okay, I had to do that. But my friend sat before me and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Excuse me. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. I had a doctor look at my mother when I was 17 years old. I broke my ankle in gym class. He looked at my mother and he says, he had his... The, the glasses were down on the bottom of his nose. I can see Max Bernstein. I can see him doing today. He says, you know, Virginia, my mother's name was Virginia. You know, Virginia, he'll never live to see 30 years old. I was 17. I was 305 pounds. I was to be 335. But he says, you know, Virginia, he'll never live to see 30. Doctors had pronounced they've been signing my death certificate for years, and I'm still here. Okay, I'm still here. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. There's another beautiful promise of the book. Don't miss it. He's looking at Ebby, and this is what he sees. Bottom of 11. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and that was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. Which had done the impossible. And it was only impossible because our human minds can't conceive of the power that is unleashed when we start working these steps. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted, great tidings. Now, 
What is Bill saying here? He is saying unequivocally that he was no longer looking for the splitting of the Red Sea. He was no longer looking for the oil in the, in the lamp that was supposed to burn for one day and burn for eight days. He was looking at a drunk. He was looking at his friend, Ebby. And Ebby was an alcoholic, a drunk, a sot. And Ebby was sober. Now, I wish that everybody could come up here and see what I'm looking at right now. Some of you are awake. Some are not. <laughs> but of you who are awake, here's what I see. I see a room full of compulsive overeaters. I see a room full of people who have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. And in this moment, as we sit here, there's not one of you that is compulsively overeating at this moment. I don't know what you got planned. I don't know what you got in your room or your purse. I don't know. But for right now, there is not a one of you in this room that is compulsively overeating at this moment. And if that isn't a miracle, if that isn't what we're looking for in terms of miracles, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Okay. So Bill is now starting to think, well, maybe this is something I better look at. Let's see where he goes from there. Okay, we're at the bottom of 11. I saw that my friend was, inwardly, was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was, his, he was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy, hesitation. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea, and he said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And Ebby telling Bill that idea has swung the gates of this recovery open to tens of millions of people so that we could sit in this room and laugh together and cry together and heal together and recover together. And we can tell each other our stories and we can speak and understand that language of the heart that we speak and understand so well that others just don't speak, nor do they understand, comes from the point where it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what religion you are or what background or nationality you are. You are welcome here. You are welcome in Overeaters Anonymous and we welcome you with open arms. Not begrudgingly and not reluctantly, we welcome you. And when we get to this point where we're saying to ourselves, we can have a God uh, of our understanding, so many sponsors today are not working with sponsees to really point out that this means so much more than whatever religion you are, you're welcome here. That's true. Whatever your nationality, your color, your whatever it is, your creed, does, what we're not doing in so many of our meetings today is we're not understanding the necessity of sitting with that sponsee and actually formulating a job description of a God that you are willing to believe in. And there are so many people today in Overeaters Anonymous, and I see it incessantly at our meetings in Scottsdale. I see it in the Phoenix meetings, in the Chicago meetings, and all over. People are trying to drag that hippopotamus out through the dog door, and they're trying to drag a God that was forced upon them in childhood into their program, and for so many of us, it cannot be done. I have to have a God that is new. I have to have a God that has little bearing on that God that was forced on me 
me in childhood. I'm not saying that the God of my religion is a bad God. But what I, what I can tell you is that my God that I have in my heart today bears very little resemblance to the God that's presented in the Old Testament. I have a God that, as I said, is perfect, personal, and powerful. But that doesn't include biblical for me, for me. If that includes biblical for you, God bless you. That's fantastic. Again, please, I don't want to get calls from all over creation. Did you tell those people? No, 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 no. I am just sharing what I think, what I believe. And if you have that other God or some other God or some concept, we welcome you. I'll walk on hot coals to defend your right to do that. I absolutely will. But I'm just sharing what I'm doing with me. Rowan, where am I? Oh. Okay, thank you. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required. Nothing more. It doesn't say I have to believe. It says I have to be willing to believe. Okay? To make what, nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. The evidence was overwhelming now. He's looking at a drunk and the drunk is sober. I went home for a high school reunion not long ago and there were people that said, you can't be Harlan Grabowski. Harlan Grabowski's dead. I said, well, you didn't tell me, so I'm here. <laughs> I had to show a couple of people my driver's license. Hand to God, I had to show them my driver's license. Thus was I convinced that God was concer is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. How do I demonstrate that I want him enough? I pray. I work the steps. I work the steps. That's what I do. That's how I show God that I want him in my life. I work the steps. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Wow. I saw, I felt, I believed. I didn't come here to find God. I didn't come here to find anything. I came here and you gave me a book. And I started doing what the book said. And I didn't just find God. I found myself and my fellow human being. I found me. I found my fellow human being. And I found God in this program. That's a lot to find. And on the way to that... I lost the Kit Kat bars and the Doritos and the mountains and mountains of matzo balls and fries and pizzas and all those other things that ruled my life and ruined my life and degraded me beyond any comprehension. What did I do? What prenatal felonies had I committed? Now I don't have to live that way. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since how blind I had been. What were those worldly clamors? I've got bills, I've got this, I've got that. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being, and as a human being, I'm going to have challenges. That's as it should be. At the hospital, now this is Bill's third hospitalization, December the 13th, 1934. He was drinking, but going to the Oxford group meetings in November and December. He is having experience in the group, but he's still drinking. He checks into the hospital on December the 13th, 1934, and on December the 14th, 1934, at the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time, treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. 
I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. So that is steps one, two, and three. I ruthlessly faced my sins, step four. Sorry, step six and seven. Ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend, notice friend is in capitals, it's God, take them away, root and branch. I have not had a drink since. So he's done steps one, two, three, six, and seven. I'm sorry, and four, six, and seven. I left out four. I ruthlessly faced my sins. Four, six, and seven. My schoolmate visited me. So yeah, that's what I would have beat myself up on the airplane. Why didn't you say four? It's four is in there too. My schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Step five, we made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Eight and nine. I express my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Eight, never was I to be critical of them. I'm sorry, that's step nine. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. Let me do that again. The first part is steps one, two, and three. Then he says, I ruthlessly faced my sins. Four, became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. Six and seven. My schoolmate visited me. Five, I acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Five, we made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Eight, I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals. Nine, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. Ten, I was to test my, new th my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly, this is step 11, when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. Now, he's done the first 11 steps right there in the town's hospital with both God and Ebby. My friend promised, that's Ebby, that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which, a way of living which answered all my problems. There's nothing I can't take to God. Belief in a power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Now, the word there is requirements. These are not suggestions. These are requirements. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of light who presides over us all. That means I must turn in all things. All being the key word there. All things. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. Bill always said that he had a vital spiritual experience in the town's hospital when he saw the white light come into the room and he's going to call Silkworth over to make sure he's not crazy. For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as, he t as I talked. Now Silkworth could have said to him, yes you are crazy, just whatever, but he was too good of a man to do that. And this is one of the, is it odd or is it God moments that Bill was encouraged to think and to know that he had had something important rather than to think that he was crazy. And Silkworth gave him an answer that made it possible for us to be here this afternoon in San Diego. Okay? For a moment... I was, oh wait, I did that already. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you I don't understand, but you better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who've had such experiences. He knows they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. Now understand that Bill, up to this point, was a selfish drunk. He was a selfish, self-willed drunk. And here he is 
thinking of other people. And this afternoon, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to read on page 63, we were reborn. Bill has now been reborn. And for the first time in his life, he is thinking of others with absolutely no expectation of any sort of return. Excuse me. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity, necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Certain is the key word there. If he did not work, he would surely drink and again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Just remember, this is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. There is no chapter into thinking. There is no chapter into hoping. There, this is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. My wife and I abandon ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found, now if I'm your sponsor, and some of you are probably glad I'm not, you're going to find me saying this to you a lot. You're having trouble. You're having a problem. We're doing a 10-step. That's fine. What I tell them, go get out of yourself. Go get out of yourself. Go get out of yourself. It's like a broken record. Help someone else. Make an outreach call. Because when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic will save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough going. We commenced to make many fast friends. Remember when he became the lone wolf? Now he's making a lot of friends. And I love you all. And I have many, many friends that I could bring into this room that have known me for 61 years. I have friends from Chicago that now live in Arizona. I have friends from Chicago that still live in Chicago. I have friends from Chicago that live in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in other places too. And they know everything about me. They knew my mom. They knew my dad. They've been, they've been in my home. And I know everything about them. I know their whole extended families. I've been to the bar mitzvahs and the funerals and the holiday dinners. I've been to all that stuff. But you know me better than they will ever know me because you know me right here. You know why I eat. And you know, you speak and understand the language of the heart that they don't speak and they don't understand. Okay, many t- okay, I designed for Lynn. We commenced to make many fast friends, and a fellowship has grown up among us that is really a wonderful thing to feel apart. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty, I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere, have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted, feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city, Akron, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and its environs, there are 1,000 of us in our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity, but just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. Most of us feel we, look no, we need look no further for utopia. We have it, 
with us right here and now, each day, my friend, simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Bill Wilson, Bill W., co-founder of AA, died January 24th, 1971. So before we conclude with Bill's story and before we move on, I hope that by coming here, we have made it less about a man that you're never going to meet in this lifetime and more about you, that you can identify with the way Bill drinks, that you can identify with the way Bill thinks, and you can identify with his struggles when it comes to accepting this power greater than himself. And once he accepted it, the effect was electrifying. He found himself catapulted into a fourth dimension of existence far beyond anything that he ever could have imagined. And from this very simple man, from this man who didn't seem to deserve it, didn't seem to earn it, whatever it is, from this man springs the fellowship that we so enjoy today. All right? Uh, Let's take a five-minute potty break. Let's go pee-pee or whatever you need to do for about five minutes, and we'll come back and we'll talk about Chapter 5.